If you all would turn to the book of Ruth. So we'll just head to chapter 1. We all know that the stories in the Bible, they're true stories. They're historical stories. God has orchestrated this story. It is almost like it was written by a story writer, you know, trying to get some kind of effect. It's got drama. It's got everything in it you would want to read in a good story. And it's actually been called by more than one person the most beautiful short story that's ever been written. And the thing about the book of Ruth is it's about the sovereign providence of God. That's all throughout this book. But the amazing thing is, he's only mentioned twice in the book. Once at the beginning and once in the end. But yet you see his hand throughout all the events that take place. He's quietly there throughout everything that takes place in the book of Ruth. So he does it through the book of Ruth, through the words and actions of the people involved in just their everyday lives. And the people here, the main characters, they're people just like us. A mother, a young wife, and a farmer. We got farmers in here, several of them. People just like us. And so you look at verse 1 here, it starts off, it says, and now it came to pass. I mean, it's similar to once upon a time, except the difference is this really is true. It came to pass. Now it came to pass. And it says in verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, we kind of know what those days were like. And if you're in Ruth, in my Bible, it's just at the top of the page. If you look at the very last verse of Judges, right before Ruth, it tells us what those days were like. And we know this. It says, and in those days, the days of the Judges, there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which is right in his own eyes. And that's the days we live in. If you pay attention to the news at all, just this week. We don't even know which bathrooms we're allowed to go in anymore. I mean, a guy got fired from a major sports network just because he said that if a man is biologically a man, he should use a man's restroom and a woman likewise, and that it should be by our biology and not by what we want our identity to be. Well, that today, in this country, in this world today, you get fired for that. And I could go on and on about every man does that which is right in his eyes, but that's the days we live in. And what about truth in the days of the judges? In Samuel, it writes this, The child Samuel, who was the last judge, ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and it says the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. And that's, believe me, in a lot of ways, that's the world we're living in today, too. The word of God is becoming more precious, more scarce, and iniquity and delusion are becoming the norm. So... The freaks, I mean, I don't mean it anything derogatory, but the freaks are becoming normal. And the normal people are considered freaks, and they get fired. I mean, it's, that's the way it is, for the most part. So the interesting thing is, though, in the days when the judges ruled, and they were dark days, what we see here in the book of Ruth, because this is the time. It's dark times. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. They don't care about God at all and his law. But during this time, his grace comes shining down on this story. So if you read chapters 17 and 21 of Judges, that's about as dark a picture as you can paint about the morality of a people at the end of the book of Judges. And yet it's during those days, the days of the Judges, like I said, that God displays his grace in the story of Ruth. And here for us today, we can get hope from that because we are living in dark days. And these days are only going to get darker 
But what that tells us, though, is if God shined his grace on his people, then he will do that for us and our children. My children, they're going to be hopefully along a lot longer than I am. I'm 55. I mean, I got young kids. It's comforting for me to know that, hey, in the darkness of Israel, as dark as that was, as, as chaotic, it was an unsafe place to live. But yet God is still watching over his people in a sovereign way, still manifesting his loving kindness to those people in a sovereign way. So here's what we can see in this book. So God, we know, is sovereign over the big picture, the nations that rise and fall, but he's also in the details. We know that about the birds. He says, a bird doesn't fall from a tree on the ground without your heavenly father being there without him being there, without him willing it to happen. Not even a bird. He cares about his animal creation that much even. Even a bird. And he goes on to say, so even the hairs of our head, as few as they may be coming, but every single one of them, it says he literally cares about and has numbered. And I care about mine too. I like to know what the number is. <laughs> but that's our Lord. He's sovereign over the insignificant Sometimes don't we just seem insignificant? And in a lot of ways, we are. Our little church here and all of us gathered here, I mean, we're a big deal to each other, but we're insignificant on the world stage and probably in the state of Kentucky and probably in the city of Shelbyville. <laughs> You're going to narrow it down to that. Well, look what we have here in Ruth 1. He says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. So it says there was a famine in the land. And it's the same term that was used in Genesis 12:10, And Abraham... And what did Abraham do in Genesis 12? He went down to Egypt, and it was nothing but problems for him for the rest of his life. You have the same terminology used. There was a famine in the land in the days of Isaac. But the Lord told Isaac, you stay in Canaan. And he did. And God blessed him because of that. So all through the Bible we know, even in through the New Testament, God frequently uses famines for his purposes. And so the fact that this is introduced in the book of Ruth, we know based on what we've already read in the Old Testament, something important is about to happen here. Something's getting ready to happen. But the question we need to ask, kind of already answered, should Elimelech ever have left Israel? Was a famine a good reason for him to leave? Well, let me ask you this. Is spanking your child a good reason for him to go and live with the neighbors? Now, don't ask child services that. I have an answer for that. But shouldn't a child that's being disciplined just submit to his parents and all will be well? Isn't that the way it really works? And so if you run away from God's chastisement, don't you think that he can still find you? The people of Israel, they knew that chastisement was the cause of disobedience. That's what we have in Deuteronomy 28. It's one of the curses. He says, if you don't obey my voice, you're going to have famine. And he describes it. Deuteronomy 28. And when the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem and there was only a few people left, they came to Jeremiah the prophet and they said, will you seek the Lord and tell us what to do? Should we stay here? What should we do? And Jeremiah says, I'll do that, but you've got to tell me you're going to obey what I say. And they say, whatever the Lord says, that's what we'll do. And Jeremiah seeks the Lord and he comes back and he says, hey, fellas, 
if you'll stay here, God will be with you. He'll bless you and all that. But he says, if you take off down to Egypt because you're afraid of a famine, you will die. That's what he told him. And guess what? They all got together and some false prophets said, don't listen to him. He was wrong. And all, most of the people went down to Egypt. And guess what happened to them? They died. And so look what we have here. Verse 3. They left the country, they went down to Moab and continued there, and it says in verse 3, and Elimelech, Naomi's husband, he died. And so what principle can we learn from that? If we're experiencing chastisement, running from the Lord is not going to bring you relief. Just ask Jonah. Didn't get him any relief, just got him in the belly of a whale. So what we need to do is, if that's the case, rather than run, we need to get our hearts right with the Lord. And he'll deliver us and just trust him to deliver us from our famine, whether it's spiritual or physical. But here in verse 4, not only did Elimelech do harm to himself, and I'm sure he meant well for his family. That's probably how he reasoned everything out. But he harmed his whole family as well. And it says initially in verse 2 that they just came to sojourn. They weren't planning on staying there. It was just going to be a short time. But then it says that they continued there in verse 3, and finally we see in verse 4, it says they took their wives and they dwelled. They went from being sojourners to dwellers. Look in verse 4. It says they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth, and they went from sojourning to dwelling. It says they dwelled there for 10 years. Wives of the women of Moab. So this is what Elimelech has brought his family into. So what should that be? They got these wives of the women of Moab. How does that reckon with God? If you'll turn to Deuteronomy 7, just put something there. Just want to look at this briefly. Deuteronomy 7. So they married these foreign women. In Deuteronomy 7, beginning at verse 1, it says this, And when the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land, whether thou goest to possess it, and hast cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations, greater and mightier than thou, and when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, you shall smite them, utterly destroy them, thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them, neither shall you make marriages with them. Verse 3, thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. Pretty clear. Because look what he says in verse 4. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods, and so will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy you suddenly. Now doesn't that sound a lot like 2 Corinthians 6? Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And God says we need to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. And they had lost that. They weren't obeying what was said here. And also, as far as the Moabites go, they were actually specifically named that Israel was to have nothing to do with them. And that will be significant later on in the story. And I want us to look at that now. So here, God has already told them don't marry foreign wives. But they don't just marry foreign wives. They're marrying Moabites. If you would just turn over in Deuteronomy, stay in Deuteronomy, and just go over to chapter 23. Deuteronomy 23, 3. And it says, an Ammonite or a Moabite. 
shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. And here's why. Because they met you not with bread and with water in the way when you came forth out of Egypt. And because they hired against thee Balaam, the son of Beor, of Pethor, of Mesopotamia, to curse thee. So, I mean, this is like a double negative for them to be not only marrying foreign wives, but to be marrying these Moabite wives. They're not going to be able to bring those women back to Israel. Go back to Ruth. God had said in Deuteronomy 7 that if you did that, they'd take your hearts away. He'll destroy you suddenly. And look what we have here in verse 5. And Malon and Chilion died. Also, both of them, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. And left means she's the only one that remained. Everybody else was dead that had come with her into that land. Wow. So she came in with her family, and now she is empty. And what do you think food and a comfortable lifestyle meant to her at that point? You know, because they probably, you think about it, they probably would have survived in Israel. Others did if they would have stayed. And they left full. So they didn't leave like they were starving already. That's what it says later on. They left full, weren't starving, but now she's empty. And so what's she suffering at this point? Naomi, she might have just had to obey her husband and leave. But she's suffering what I would call the bitter providence of God. So she understands something. We see this in chapter 1. She understands that God is in control and that these terrible losses that she's suffering come from his hand. Look in verse 13. She tells her two daughters later on, she said, would you tarry for them till they were grown? Would you stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters. Look what she says, for it grieves me much for your sakes. Look at the end, that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. And the hand of the Lord being against you, that stands symbolically in the Old Testament for the irresistible power of God. When his hand is against you, there is nothing you can do about it. And that's what she's saying. The hand of the Lord is against me, and I'm in these circumstances now. I'm in this bitterness of these circumstances. And look what else she goes on to say in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 1. And she said unto them when she goes back to her hometown, she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. And look at these four things she says. The Almighty has dealt, the Almighty, she says, has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21, I went out full, and she says, the Lord has brought me home again empty. So why do you call me Naomi? See, the third thing here, the Lord has testified against me. And the fourth thing, and the Almighty has afflicted me, she says. That's four things. She says God's hand has been against her. He's dealt very bitterly with her. He's brought her empty. He's testified against her by all these circumstances and providential circumstances that are coming her way. And she says, he has afflicted me. And you've got to put yourself in her shoes at this point. So she's been through a famine. They moved to pagan Moab. The death of her husband, her sons go and marry foreign wives. And those wives are barren. For 10 years, no grandchildren. Nobody's coming out of those marriages. And then the death of her sons. Blow after blow. Tragedy after tragedy. And she's getting nothing positive from the Lord. And that's where she's at right now. And look at verse 19. She, she comes back 
Look what they say in verse 19. So the two went until they came to Bethlehem, and it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them. And look what they say. Is this Naomi? Is this her? She left full. She left here with a smile and with hope in her family. And look at her now. Is this her grim? And she's aged and no husband and sons. And the only thing she's got with her is this foreign girl. She didn't come back the way she left, is what they're saying. Now, her name, do you know what the name Naomi means? It means pleasant. But verse 20, she told him, she said, they said, is this Naomi? She says, don't call me that anymore at this point in the story. Don't call me that. She says, call me something else. Call me Mara. You know what Mara means? Mara means bitter. And that's where we're at in chapter 1. Aren't we glad the story doesn't stop there? <laughs> because here's what we want to ask. Is that the last word? Is bitter the last word? <laughs> so the question she needs to ask is the question many of us have asked when life seems to deal with this blow after blow after blow. She's asking herself then, can I trust and love the God who has dealt me this painful hand in life? That's what she's got to deal with. She's saying, oh, just call me bitter. And so listen, Sometimes we have to wrestle with that, the way circumstances seem to be and losses that we have and just the way situations are going. And that's not a sin to wrestle with it. I guarantee you Joseph had to wrestle with it, and we know that Job wrestled with it because he had to deal in a day, one day, with more than Naomi did over 10 years. But we know this, Job never gave up his faith. But he did say this, let the day perish wherein I was born. And the night in which it was said, there is a man-child conceived. Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? And he goes on. So you can, he's wrestling with this whole thing. All this misery's coming. It's come from the hand of the Lord. He knows God has allowed it. Do we receive blessing from the Lord and not when his hand's against us? We're going to complain about him then, he told his wife. But he goes on to say, wherefore is light given to him that is in misery and life Unto the bitter in soul. So he was bitter and dealing with bitterness just like Naomi was. And David had to deal with the same thing when he's out there in that wilderness. Been anointed king and he's on the run and hard things are happening to him. And he said, my tears. So he's wrestling with this. My tears have been my meat, my food, day and night. And while they continually say unto me, where is thy God? And I will say unto God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? David, a man after God's own heart, is wrestling with this. And he's saying to the Lord, based on his circumstances, he says, why have you forgotten me? He says, why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? But here's what we all need to see and remember. And that is that all things serve God's good end. For us we've got to remember that and here's the deal while we're going through those dark times we may not understand how and it doesn't seem like how could this ever be for good now that's when we can't lean on our own understanding because it appears like it appeared to Naomi here it appeared and when you look at the whole story it appeared like God had totally forgotten her his hand was against her that's her confession and we'll see it really wasn't the case he hadn't forgotten, and he hadn't forgotten us. And I'll tell you, here's where I think Naomi, she had a heart for the Lord. Because as soon as she hears there's bread in the land, back in Israel, she's ready to go back. She's not happy there. 
Probably never was, just obeying her husband. And it says here in verse 6, that when she arose with her daughter-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab. Why? For she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Wherefore, she went forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. And that's what's in her heart to do. She tries to tell her daughter-in-laws, though, look, I appreciate you all. You all really love me, and you've been great daughters and all, but really, you just need to go back from where you are. Go back to your families. Don't follow me in here, because God's hand's been against me, and I don't want it to happen to you, and I don't know what's going to happen when I go back to Israel. But she prays a blessing over her two daughters. Look what it says there in verse 8. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go return each to her mother's house. And look what she says. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. The first of seven prayers of blessings spoken by the characters of this story. And do you know that every blessing that was spoken by a person in this story came to pass? And she's speaking God's loving kindness covenant blessing on these two Moabite women. And what does that tell us? That we should be speaking blessings over each other. And it says that in 1 Peter 3, it says, finally... Be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing. But he says, contrawise. Don't be getting back at each other. Don't be railing on each other. He said, but no, just the opposite. He says, but contrawise, a blessing. We should be blessing each other. Because God will honor that. That's what we see here in the book of Ruth. He says, knowing that you are thereunto called, that you should inherit a blessing. All of our brothers and sisters here, we're all called to inherit a blessing from the Lord. And so that's what we should be speaking to each other, that God will bless us. You know, there's times when I'll add on the end of my thing, Lord bless, God bless, and I'll think, man, sometimes it just seems like, I think, but I really mean that. I mean, the other person may look at it like, you know, but finally, I really want God's blessing to be on that person. So... Praise the Lord. All of that came to pass. So she speaks blessing over her daughter-in-laws, and the blessing she speaks is this hesed love, it's called. She wants them to experience God's loving loyalty, hesed blessing. That's when he says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. That's what that word kindly means. And that word, that's God's love. It talks about his loyalty, his reliability, his kindness, his compassion on people. And listen, don't we all want to experience that in our lives? God's compassion, his loyalty, his kindness to us. And we should be speaking that to each other, that he'll do that for us. And she also goes on to say, may the Lord grant you rest. May he give you rest. What does that mean to a woman at that time? Because widows, which they were, and single women were very vulnerable. And so Rest for them, she's saying, you need to have a husband. That would be rest because a husband gave him safety, comfort, provision, and children. That's what rest would have been for a godly woman or any woman back in that day that lived back in that day. So verses 10 to 13, it goes on. They both initially wanted to go back with her, but Naomi does what? She lays out the stark reality to both of these girls, and she says, look, you come back with me, you're going to have no husband, no children, 
and no future. She says, because even if I happen to go back and get a husband and have a son, are you going to wait for him to grow up and marry him? And they're like, no way. She just lays it out and she's saying, listen, don't come back with me. God's hand has been against me and I don't know what the future would hold for you if you came back with me. I'm telling you, please don't come back. And so look at verse 14. When she says that, it says, they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. So Naomi's worldly wisdom, her worldly reasoning prevailed with Orpah. She did what was reasonable. And she loved Naomi. But you know what Orpah loved? She loved the world more. And so she left her. She really had an affection for her mother-in-law. And I imagine her reasoning went like this, like it would for a lot of people that think about maybe coming to a church like this. You know, if you follow their God, you're not going to have a good paying job. You'll probably die of sickness. You can't drink or party. You can't celebrate Christmas and you'll never get married. I mean, I imagine there's people like, I'm not following that God because I see all of that. Right? And I'm sure she was reasoning that way. But look what it says at the end of verse 14 there. Ruth was different. Look what it says. It says, but Ruth clave unto her. Clave unto her. She stuck to her like glue. And do you know that Barnabas told the church in Antioch, it said when he came there and he saw the grace of God in that church, here was his exhortation. He came and had seen the grace of God. He was glad. These people had been born again, saved, brought out of the world in Antioch. And it said he exhorted them all that with purpose of heart, they would cleave unto the Lord. That's what Barnabas told the church at Antioch. Hey, I see God's just saved you. He's doing a work in your life. And make it the purpose of your heart that you are going to cleave. Follow him holy. Follow the Lord. That's what Barnabas exhorted them to do that. He's excited for them. He wasn't getting on their case. He's saying that's what you need to do. So look here in verses 15 and 17. And she said, Behold... Naomi speaks to Ruth, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back unto her people and under her gods. Just why don't you go back with her? And Ruth said, oh, entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people and thy God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. And the Lord do so to me and more also, if aught but death part me from thee. And so in verse 15, what Naomi's doing is she's holding up Ruth's family and God. Chemosh would have been her God. She's holding that up in front of her. And she's saying, why don't you go back to that? And Ruth finally tells her what we're getting here in verse 16 when she says, entreat me not. She's saying, enough of that is what she's saying. Don't ask me to go back again. It literally means quit afflicting me. You're bothering me with all this talk about going back. I don't want to go back. And that's when she goes on to make that great confession in verses 16 and 17. Your God is my God. I've determined this. Don't try to tempt me from turning away from what I've already decided. Because here, we talked about crossroads not too long ago, and she had already faced those crosswords. You put yourself in Ruth's shoes. She's faced with choosing the familiar with the unfamiliar with comfort there in her homeland with no sure dwelling. She doesn't know where she's going to have a place to live or not. A husband with widowhood the rest of her life. Is she willing to go into that? Children with an empty house. Because that's the only promise she has at this point, right? 
safety and security, staying in Moab, and danger. She goes into Israel because the Moabites, we've already seen, they were not people that were liked. She's a foreigner going there. But she makes a choice. She gets to that car, so she says, I'm following Naomi and her God. And so what has she done? She has committed herself to love, follow, and trust God no matter what. Doesn't matter how it turns out. I'm not in this because it pays. She's seeing something in that woman that I'm willing to forsake everything. I don't care if I ever get anything. This God is worth following. And that's what faith is. Forsaking all, I trust him. I'm putting my everything on the line with God and his faithfulness. So she's saved. You think about this. She's saved by a God that she has only heard about. And she's witnessed the life of Naomi. And she's saved by a faith that comes from hearing a word about God. So what does that tell us? How important are our words in our lives that we live in front of our children and people we work with and people that we want to be saved? Because that's what saved Naomi. It wasn't anything else. The God that Naomi spoke to Ruth about had to be demonstrated through her life in such a powerful way. She had to be such a godly woman that Ruth was willing to forsake all and to put her trust in that God. There's no temple there. There's no priests for her to see. There's no prophets, no sacrifices, no praise from the Levites that she's like attracted to the music. Nothing. There was nothing to draw Ruth. But Naomi's testimony, her life, and the words that she spoke. Naomi's faithfulness and a lifestyle that exemplified godly character. But she is now, Ruth is, she is committed to go back to Bethlehem with Naomi. At this point in the story, we have two women with a bleak future in the natural. Ruth just committed her future to God, but there is no bright future in sight that she can see in the natural. She's just tagging along with this old woman, going back to Israel, back to Bethlehem. And when Naomi gets home, she doesn't have a good prospect for the future either. You know, She proclaims to the women when she gets back there that come to her, the people, that God has brought her home. She makes that much of a confession, but he's brought her home empty, she says. He's testified against me. He's afflicted me. And he has severely afflicted her at this point. And sometimes it seems that way in our lives, I think. I want to talk about this man, Adoniram Judson. He was a missionary back in the day. Came to Burma, part of India, in 1813. Came into this country. They had no gospel at all. And the king there was what you would call a supreme despot because torture and mass execution is how he kept his people in line. And we have people like that today, Idi Amin and others that have been like that. And so they had Buddhism there, and no deviation from Buddhism was allowed. It was a death sentence if you're anything other than a Buddhist. He gets there in 1813. In 1816, his first baby was born to him and his wife, Anne, and that baby lived there for eight months and died. Six years later, he gets his first convert. He's a missionary there, believes God had sent him six years to get his first convert. So he was trying to persuade the king there to let them evangelize that country and was not getting anywhere. And here we talk about providential circumstances. We believe in divine healing, but God can still use things this way. There was a doctor, a Dr. Price, that lived around there. This king had cataracts. They brought that doctor in. He was able to get rid of that king's cataracts, and that 
That king was so happy about that, he's like, all right, you can buy a house in the capital city and start evangelizing. But then in 1824, Britain attacked Burma, and Judson was arrested as a spy at the time. And he's thrown into what was known as a death prison. Put 100 men in one room that was 40 by 30 by 5. And it's hot over there, and there were no vents they put iron fetters or chains on his ankles and legs that scarred him for the rest of his life. They hung him upside down so that his shoulders touched the ground. And he said it was excruciating pain at an iron Judson. And every day at 3 o'clock, they would execute one of the hundred men. And they never knew who it was. And they had to live with that tension day after day. And the place was totally filthy. And they said Judson was one of these meticulously clean people. And he's having to live in this filth at the time. And his wife came every day and fed him, or he would have starved to death. And she would beg for the officials to give him a release. And while he's in that prison, for one year and seven months, he has another baby born to him. One year and seven months. So at one point, the prisoners were taken naked, and they were forced to march to a prison. We're going to take you all here, and we're going to execute you. And they marched them naked. Their feet were blistered. They were bloody, and these mosquitoes were t attacking them all over. It was just, it drove some of them literally crazy. It was that bad. And his wife followed that march with her baby. And she got sick with the smallpox and scarlet fever. They had no milk to feed that baby. And Justin would have to carry that screaming baby into town with his chains on to get milk for it just to have that baby live. And finally, he gets released from that prison without dying. And several months later, his wife died while he was away. She got Indian fever and she passed away. And then that little baby girl that was born that he had cared for, the love of his life, died shortly thereafter. And so here's what it says on April 24th, 1827. 14 years he's been there. His little child, which was such a comfort to him, was taken from him and bereft of his wife and child. He was alone in the world. 14 years. He came full, but like Naomi, now Judson is empty. And listen, most of us, I'm reading that, I'm thinking, I would have quit that way before then and decided this just wasn't God. And for three years through all this, he struggled. And he wrote that he felt utter desolation. And he wrote this. He says, God is to me the great unknown. He says, I believe in him, but I find him not. He was really struggling with God's providence, just like Naomi was. Just like a lot of the great saints of the Bible is. Just like Job did. Just like Naomi did here. But like I said before, is that the last word? Is God's bitter pill the last thing that his people have to swallow? So we come to chapter 2, because that's where we are in chapter 1. Kind of a dark picture there in chapter 1. We come to chapter 2, and we get, look what we have in verse 1. It says, they get back there to Bethlehem, Naomi and Ruth. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech. And his name was Boaz. And I'm saying, the introduction of this man into this story, it's like, you got a cloudy, overcast, black day, and here comes some light streaming down through all that. And that's what we have here. He's called a mighty man of wealth. God has prospered him. And look, this is the first godly person we're introduced to in this story. Look what it says in verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, 
these people that work for him. The Lord be with you. And they answered him, and the Lord bless thee. And we get a picture from this. He's a, not only a wealthy man, he's a godly man. And he's a cheerful man, a bright, cheerful, godly man. And so we're starting to see here when you're reading this story that God's providence is starting to turn for the better, isn't it? You kind of get a hint of that in that verse 1. In verse 2, it says, And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go into the field and glean ears of corn after him, in whose sight I find grace. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. And three times here in a few short verses, we're told that Ruth is a Moabitess. We've already talked about that. She should have been cursed and cut off from God. She couldn't have expected to find favor from any godly Jew. But what does she do? She ventures out into the fields. She just asks, can I go out into the fields? We need to eat. And she knew the law. You know, they were supposed to leave some behind for the poor. And look what it says in verse 3. So we're saying God's hand is throughout this story. And it says in verse 3, Naomi's like, go, my daughter. Go on out there in verse 3. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And got a little thing here. And it says, and her hap. That's a good word, isn't it? And her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. And the Hebrews say, and it translated that hap, it's like she happened to happen on. They're making it like it sort of sounds like it's just sheer chance that she gets to this field. But, I mean, do you think she was just lucky? <laughs> so from her side, what's she doing? She's just obeying the law and she's being faithful to Naomi. But from God's side, he's orchestrating everything. His hand is on this whole story. So listen, we don't need to pray and have voices, either inside or outside, telling us every little move we make, every place we go. You start getting into that, and you're going to start ending up in some weird places. That's just the way it is. We don't need voices giving that kind of guidance. But we do need to do what? We do need to pray for God to guide our steps. And that's really what Ruth is doing in verse 2. Of chapter 2 and we have this in Proverbs 24 it says the steps of a person are ordained of the Lord and that's what happened here she's just going out into a field she has no idea who owns this field she's just being obedient and prayed and God took her to the one person who can help her and Naomi a kinsman redeemer and light is starting to shine providence is starting to turn for the better here. And Boaz asked his men, she said, who is this young woman that's gathering in my fields? And they said, oh, that's that Moabite girl. There, they talk about her again. That Moabite girl that came back with Naomi from Moab. And she asked if she could glean in our fields. And man, they tell him she is a hard worker. She started here in the morning and she's working right up into the evening time. And all she did was take a short break. She's putting us to shame. She's a hard worker. And so we see in verses 8 and 9 that even though he knows she's an accursed Moabitess, Boaz is gracious to her and tells her, you just glean in my field because you'll be safe there. Look in verses 8 and 9. And then said Boaz unto Ruth, hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go from thence. But you abide here fast by my maidens, and let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men? I'm not going to let them touch you. And when you are athirst, go into the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. Gracious to her. He calls her my daughter. She's a Moabitess. And here's this man. He's speaking nice to her. My daughter. 
It's like when Jesus would say, be of good cheer. When somebody, they don't know what to expect. They're, they're terrified. He's walking on the ocean, coming at the boat. Be of good cheer, comforting words. And that's what we're getting here. He's speaking comforting words to her. And look what she asked in verse 10. She almost can't believe it. In verse 10, she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground. And she said unto them, why have I found grace in thine eyes that you should take knowledge of me? She says, seeing that I'm a stranger. And that's a good sign of salvation. That is true humility. I mean, she's not expecting anything from anybody. And surprised to get it. But think about something here. Why did she find favor in Boaz's eyes? And I'll tell you why. Because Boaz knew the heart of God. Because his family had found favor in God's eyes when they didn't deserve it. His family should have been cut off from Israel just like Ruth the Moabitess. Why do I say that? You know who his mother was? Rahab, the harlot of Jericho. She shouldn't have been part of that. And you can find the names of Ruth and Rahab, both of them, in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 1. And so that's the reason he's given her favor. But there's also another reason, too. That's not the only reason. We have another reason here that God gave Ruth favor and directed her to Boaz. Look what it says, verses 11 and 12. And Boaz answered and said unto her, It has been fully showed me all that you have done unto my, thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother in the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which you knewest not heretofore. And look what he says in verse 12. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel. And look at the end of verse 12. Here's why she's blessed. Under whose wings thou art come to trust. And when a person does that, God, any of us, when we put ourselves under his wings like little birds and trust him that way, he will be watching out for us, directing our steps, leading us where we need to go. That's what's going on here. If you don't mind, if I'd just like to look at a few psalms where it talks about us trusting under his wings. Just as an encouragement to our faith. And if you would turn first to Psalm 36. So God is faithful to reward those that put their trust in him. Psalm 36 and verse 7. And we're talking about the loving kindness of the Lord. Look what the psalmist says here. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God. So people that know that, which is what we need to know when we're going through things, how excellent is thy loving kindness, O God. Therefore, because of that, the children of men do what? They put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. So you've got to know. And Ruth somehow saw that. The loving kindness of the Lord. And she entered into Israel. She put her complete life and trust that God is a loving, kind God. And is going to watch out for her. And she says, she's watching out. He's watching out for me. I'm under his wings. Psalm 36. And then if you would turn over to Psalm 57. 57.1. The psalmist writes there, Be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful unto me, for my soul trusts in thee. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. Man, Naomi could have used that verse, I think, as an encouragement. It just hadn't been written yet because David wasn't around. 
But boy, those calamities are coming on, and she could have prayed, God, be merciful to me. Be merciful. I'm trusting under thy wings. Deliver me. And just turn over a few more psalms to Psalm 61, verses 1 to 4. And we sing this song. Hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee. And when my heart is overwhelmed, has that ever happened to any of us? She says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been a shelter for me and a strong tower from my enemy. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. And look what he says there at the end of verse 4. I will trust in the covert of thy wings. That's three scriptures we've read there. We're safe if we'll just get under the wings of God like a little chick with a mother, just like a little child with their parent. That's where it is, little birds that trust. And you know what? You know what that did? When she put that kind of trust in her Lord, that gave her the courage to venture out of a safety zone. She didn't just stay in that house with Naomi. She's going out into Israel. She's going into a field. She has no idea whether that person in that field is going to treat her kindly or not. And that's what will happen, though. But she knew she had put her trust in God. It gave her the courage to go forth into an unsafe territory. She got out of her safety zone, out of her comfort zone. And that's what has to happen for us a lot of times. We've got to put our trust in the Lord to where whether we're missionaries and we have some missionary venture or whatever it is we want to do. God's asking us to get out of our safety zone, to witness to that person you're working with, to minister to somebody. He's saying, hey... Put yourself under the cover of my wings, and then like Ruth, you'll be able to go out into that field. And you know what you'll find is God's hand has been there. He's directing you where he wants you to be, giving you the wisdom and what to say. His hand is already there. So Boaz speaks that blessing to Ruth, and God abundantly answers. And look what he goes on to say in verse 13. If you go back to Ruth, in verse 13 of chapter 2, and then she said, she hears these words from Boaz about God will recompense thy work and give you a reward because you've trusted him. And then she said, let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me. Comforted her how? With the words he spoke. He's almost speaking like a prophet to her. She says, you've comforted me and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, though I be not like one of thine handmaids. So listen, if, if we put our trust in the Lord, just like with Boaz here, what's God going to do? He's going to comfort us, isn't he? He'll give us comforting words. And what else will he do? He'll speak friendly to us. God's not our enemy. So Boaz goes on, he tells Ruth, he says, I want you to eat with me and my men today. And he tells the men after they're done, he says, I want you guys to drop some, he calls it, hands fulls of purpose. Purposely drop a ton of this grain for this woman to get. And so she goes home with approximately 30 to 50 pounds of barley. It's like an, an unbelievable amount that she takes home to Naomi. And when she gets home, Naomi looks at what all she's got and she says, where did you glean this? You know, God bless the man that helped you. And you know what happens? Ruth tells her, she says, oh, yeah, well, the man's name with whom I worked is Boaz. Oh, boy. You know what that would have meant to Naomi? Those words would have been like a cool drink to her desert soul. Words of hope. She would have been like, man, 
God had brought me as low as I thought I could go. But she's saying, now I'm seeing hope. Boaz, she says, I'm seeing a redeemer, is what she would have said. And her weak faith is coming to life. Because what happens here now is she starts perceiving the loving kindness of the Lord that he's directing and blessing Ruth. And that love is directly coming her way, directly pointed at her. That's what she's seeing there. And so one apparently chance event after another point. Naomi's seeing this now. It points to the unmistakable loving hand of God's providence now. Things have completely turned around. Look what she says in verse 20. And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord. And she says, The Lord has not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said unto her, The man is near of kin unto us, one of our next kinmen, a girl, a redeemer. And she says, God has not left off his kindness. So her faith is reviving at this point. But what we need to understand is this redeemer, this near kinsman, they had three things they were supposed to do. If somebody killed somebody else, you're supposed to take care of them and avenge that death. The other thing is, if one of your relatives, a near relative, had to sell their property to pay back debts, you're supposed to get it back for them. And you also have the responsibility of the Leverite marriage to raise up seed if your brother died. That's what this man, to preserve the name of the deceased. But to do that, you had to meet three qualifications. You had to have the right to redeem, which meant you had to be a blood relative, and you also had to have the power. You had to have enough money to do it. If you didn't have enough money, you couldn't be a redeemer. And you also had to be willing. You had to want to do it. And listen, the Lord Jesus Christ did all of that for us. He became one of us when he took on flesh. And he had the wealth. He had the sinless, perfect life, the precious blood of Christ. More precious than silver or gold, he had the wealth. And not only that, he was willing to come. He wasn't forced to come down here for our salvation. He is the great redeemer that all this is pointing to. And so Naomi's seeing this at this point. She's seeing God in his loving kindness has provided this kinsman redeemer. One that meets all the qualifications. God has given this to her. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, gave him that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In chapter 3, Ruth knows that Boaz, Ruth and Naomi both, they know that Boaz is their only hope to keep the family name alive. And he's already shown them favor and love and kindness. So Naomi gives her some direction. She tells Ruth, look, I want you to wash, get yourself bathed, put on some perfume, and put on the best dress you have. And wait until Boaz lays down for the night after the barley harvest party, after he's drunk in the night, after his barley harvest. And when he uncovers his feet, you say, just lay there until he wakes up, which he does, startled. And look what happens here in chapter 3. Verses 8 and 9, and it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid. He sees Ruth down there, and he turns himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she says, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for you are a near kinsman. So that word she used there for handmaid means a marriageable female slave, and that's what she's after. She's not trying to tempt him. This is not a lustful encounter. 
She's just letting him know, I want to marry you. I want you to marry me. And so when she asked him to spread that skirt over that handmaid, that just symbolizes marriage is what's going to happen there. And she's casting herself at his feet. She's coming and risking all that he'll receive her. She doesn't know, right? That's what she's doing. And that's what a person does a lot of times coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, who Boaz is a type of, right? You cast yourself at his feet. We heard Stephen's testimony. He says, I had to struggle with that. I wasn't sure if God would receive me. And yet, John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out, just like Boaz didn't cast out Ruth. And the lepers come to him. They don't know what he's going to do. They're untouchables. They're not supposed to be amongst the living. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, Jesus saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. Forever settles God's willingness to heal. That is the worst disease you could have had back then. That was the death sentence. And God says, I will. If you will, you can make me clean. Forever settles God's willingness to heal. And the gathering demoniacs, the same deal, cast himself at Jesus' feet. And he said when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and fell down and worshipped him. As his only hope, just like we have here. Ruth and Naomi, you're our only hope, Boaz. Cast yourself at his feet. He's the only hope. Take that risk. And people that do that with God, he never turns them down. He always helps us out. That's the God he is. The woman with the issue of blood, she was desperate, suffered many things at the hand of many physicians. Twelve long years. And what does she do? She risks all again, doesn't she? And she says within herself, I'm taking this chance. I know there's power in this man. Other people have touched him and been healed. And I can just get up to him. It's worth it. And just touch the hem of his garment. I'll be made whole. And so Boaz speaks nicely to Ruth. And Jesus spoke nicely to this woman. Said kind words to her. He's looking around. He's saying, who touched me? Because power went out of me. A lot of people are touching. Yeah, but somebody touched me with faith. And healing power went out of me. Who is the one that did it? And she is scared. She's going to get in trouble. And she comes up to him, but man, was she in trouble with the Lord? Are you kidding? Here's what he says, daughter. Just like Boaz spoke to Ruth, daughter. He says, thy faith has made you whole. Go in peace. You don't have to be afraid. I came here to heal people, to deliver from the effects of the devil. Go in peace. There's nothing to be afraid of about me. And he says, be whole of thy plague. That's the way the Lord spoke. So Ruth 11.3, this is the word, God's word to all those that are trusting him. Look what Boaz says, verse 3.11. He says, and now my daughter, fear not, I will do to thee all that thou requirest. And if you're trusting the Lord for something and your heart's right today, that is God's word to you today. Fear not, daughter or son. I will do to you all that you require. And Boaz gave his pledge at that point. Another kinsman stood in the way, someone nearer than him. And Boaz says, look, I will take care of him, but I'm going to do it in a righteous way. He's not like I'm going to go knock that guy off that other near kin. He wanted to marry Ruth. 
He said, well, we're going to do it the right way. They met in the gate, and he told the guy, look here, you know, they got this land and all this. You can buy it. It'll be part of your inheritance, and it's oh, such a one. And oh, such a one's like, oh, man, I'll take that. That sounds like a good deal. Make my property in Landsberg. He says, yeah, but there's one hitch he has on it. If you do that, you got to take Ruth, the Moabitess. Oh, no, I don't want her. Uh-uh, that's going to mar, he said. That will mar my inheritance. But Boaz had given her here in this verse 11, he had given her a pledge. He said, I'll do to you all that you require. You know what he did? He took care of that other guy, oh, such a one. And that guy represents the law. And the Lord took care of the law for us, didn't he? He didn't put it aside. He took the punishment that was coming. He took care of it all. That's the way he is. So Naomi took this promise given there as a promise from God that he gave to Ruth. When Ruth tells him what he said, he gave her barley and a pledge of his word to fulfill his word. And when he does that, when he says, I'm going to fulfill what I was said, and I want you to take all this barley home to your mother-in-law, he's making a pledge that you're no longer going to be empty. Look in verse 16. When she came to her mother-in-law, Naomi said, Who art thou, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done to her. And she said, These six measures of barley gave he me. For he said, Go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. And then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will fall. For the man will not be in rest until he has finished the thing this day. And so what is he saying? He's saying, Don't go back empty. Where does that sound like? What did she say when she came back? She said, I left full, but I came back empty. And he's saying, this is God speaking through him. Tell her she will no longer be empty. Her Redeemer's taking care of her. God has brought her back. She was brought back empty, but now she is full because God is faithful to his people. And she's resting, verse 18, on that promise like it's a promise from God. Because it is that promise that came from Boaz. And so we'll finish up here in chapter 4. We'll look at it this way. A man said he looked at this and saw four redeemers. And there are four redeemers in chapter 4. And the first one we've already talked about, it's this unnamed man. Ho such a one is what he's called with. And that first redeemer who was able to redeem her, he wanted nothing to do with her. Like we said, because she was a Moabitess. He had no love for her. All he had was judgment. And that's the way the law was to us. And the second redeemer is who? It's Boaz. And what was Boaz like? He says, I will gladly sacrifice everything to marry Ruth. Why? Because he loves her. And when he looks at Ruth, he doesn't see a Moabitess. You know what he sees? A child of God. The way God sees us. He no longer sees us as Gentile sinners, which is what we were cut off from the commonwealth of Israel. We are his redeemed bride. Boaz went on and says, hey, I've gotten her. I purchased the land of Elimelech, Malon, Chilon, and I've got Ruth the Moabitess to be my wife. He's not ashamed of her, of who she is, and Jesus isn't ashamed of us, our Lord. He loved us and gave himself for us. But then there is a third redeemer, and do you know who that is? The child that was born to Ruth. Look in verses 11 to 13, chapter 4. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders says, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is come into thy house like Rachel and like Leah, 
which did build the house of Israel, and do thou worthily in Ephratah, and be famous in Bethlehem, and let thy house be like the house of Pharaoh, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife, and when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. So he had to supernaturally open her womb, because remember, she had been barren ten years, couldn't have a baby. And so the people speak a blessing on her and say, let her be like Rachel and Leah. Well, Rachel and Leah, what that means is they were both barren at one point until God opened their wombs. And God did that for her. They spoke that blessing on her. We said all these blessings and prayers were spoken. All of them God honored, and he honored that one. And But from there on out, you know what? Ruth is no longer spoken of. We, all we hear about from there on out is the blessing that has come on Naomi. Verses 14, and the woman, she bears a son, but look, she's not talked about anymore. Verse 14, and the woman said unto Naomi, blessed be the Lord, which has not left thee this day without a kinsman. That's the redeemer, that his name may be famous in Israel. He shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine own old age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became a nurse unto it. And in doing that, she legally became the mother. And look what it says. Here's what the women say. And the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, what does it say? There is a son born to Naomi. Well, who was that son born to? It was born to Ruth. Guess what happened? This is Ruth's gift to Naomi. It's now her child. But more importantly, you know whose gift that is to Naomi? You know who this Redeemer is that has come to Naomi? That is God's gift to her. God's gift to Naomi. That is God's answer right here to Naomi's bitterness and emptiness. A baby born in Bethlehem. This story did not end the way it started, did it? Because God is faithful to his people. Well, listen, there's a fourth redeemer in this story. Look in verses 18 down to the finish. And now these are the generations of Pharaoh. Pharaoh begat Hezron, Hezron begat Ram, Ram begat Amimadab, and Amimadab begat Nashon, Nashon begat Salmon, Salmon begat Boaz, Boaz begat Obed, Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. And what does that point to? The one who is the whole key to this story, the one who's the whole key to the whole Bible, the great Redeemer, the other baby who was born in Bethlehem, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the son of David who's mentioned here at the end. He is the fourth redeemer. And we said that that baby was God's gift to Ruth, and she gave it to Naomi. It's his gift to them. And what is the Lord Jesus Christ, our redeemer? He's God's love gift to you and I. That's the climax. It climaxes in that, pointing right to the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ, the next baby that's going to be born in Bethlehem, the fourth redeemer, <laughs> the one that's given us Everything. It's God's answer to your bitter situation and emptiness, if that's what you're dealing with today. He'll work your circumstances out. Just like he did for Ruth and Naomi. They look bitter like chapter 1. 
His hand is on it all when it looked like it wasn't. Because how else was Ruth going to get there? How else was Ruth going to have that baby? How else was Ruth going to be in Matthew chapter 1? And that's what God said was going to happen. He's got his hand on it all. In what looks like the darkest days that could never get any better, God is faithful and brings them all the way to chapter 4. Here's your Redeemer that's made all this possible. It's brought this joy back in your life. Naomi and Ruth, he's honored your faith. And look, totally impossible. That is our sovereign God. His hand is in throughout this whole book, bringing this all to pass. So whatever you need, it's found in this Redeemer, this fourth Redeemer, whatever your need is in here today, all of us. So in the overall biblical salvation history, what we're seeing here, this is how God preserved the promise to Abraham that through his seed salvation would come to the world. And you know how he performed that? This is the big picture. How did he keep that seed alive, keep that lineage that we can look at? When we look at Matthew 1, it starts, today, it starts back in Adam, goes all the way through, but Abraham all the way down the line. How did he keep that connection going? He did it through these insignificant people. He did it through blessings they would speak on each other. He put it on that this woman goes out to help her mother-in-law and goes into this field. God's hands on all of it. All these little insignificant things in life. People just being faithful to God. He works it out to where the Savior, David, is born. The grandfather of David comes into existence in a way you would have never thought possible. Seemed even contrary to his law. Through the faithfulness of everyday people like me and you. And so we see in this story God's sovereign love overcomes the sin, the bitter circumstances, and the utter hopelessness that sometimes casts a shadow over all of our lives in here. And so God is only named twice, but he's quietly working behind the scenes in his great power to make all things work together for the good of those that love him. And so our darkest situations are overcome by our great Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. Just like Boaz, he shines in and comes and will speak words of comfort and give us indication of God's loving providence in our lives, just like that happened to them. So the captivity of Naomi, it's turned by the Hesed. I've talked about that, the Hesed of God. Back in 2.20, Blessed be the Lord God who has not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead, the steadfast love of the Lord, that covenant love of God, our great God, Lamentations 3, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions, they never fail. We sing that song. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, and the Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good. Unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeks him, it is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. And that is written right in the midst of the utter desolation of Jerusalem when it was destroyed. Say, don't look at that. It's good for a man to quietly wait and hope for the salvation of God. It doesn't matter what you're seeing around you. That's that word. Lamentations 3. So what about Adoniram Judson? We left him. He's wondering. He said, I believe in God, but man, I'm struggling with everything. That's where we left him. I don't want to leave him hanging there because God didn't, just like with Naomi. So in 1829, back on him, his brother, he'd been praying for his brother forever who was unsaved when he left for Burma. 
He'd come to faith, became a Christian, and passed away at the age of 35. And that, seeing God's hand in that, just like that little word that there's a redeemer here, gave Naomi hope and revived her faith, it revived Adoram Judson, his faith. It revived him, brought him out of that darkness. Two years later, he wrote this. You know, this man was struggling for one convert for six years. It seems like nothing's happening, and all that's happening are his family's dying. It's like the book of Job. But listen to this. He wrote this, Judson, two years later, after his brother gets saved, he says, the spirit of inquiry is spreading everywhere through the whole length and breadth of the land. We have distributed 10,000 tracts. And listen, the only people they would give a track out to was someone that came and asked them for one. They wouldn't just hand it to somebody walking by. 10,000 tracts given to none but those who ask. Some come two or three months journey I mean, I've never had a person practically go two blocks to ask me for a track. I mean, these people will come two or three months journey from the borders of Siam and China. And here's what these people would say to him. Sir, we hear that there is an eternal hell. We are afraid of it. Do give us a writing that will tell us how to escape it. God has sent an outpouring. That's what Judson wrote. He preached to thousands, printed two million tracts in scriptures. He organized bands of Christians who went two by two into the jungle. In 1834, after 21 years of work, he completed a translation of the Bible in Burmese. And people that know about that stuff said that is the Judson Bible is the best translation that has ever appeared in India. And not only that, he married again. And all these kids didn't die. He had eight children that lived. Hundreds of converts were heading to the church in Burma. And today there are 3,700 congregations with 618,000 members in Myanmar. And they trace their origins back to this man. And that's what God did for him. And that's what God will do for us. Like Naomi, the bitter and empty life of Adoniram Judson was filled with great joy. By whom? His great Redeemer. God's faithfulness. And so we have to trust, don't we, in the sovereign love of God, no matter what we're going through, no matter how long it's been going on. And if we believe God's words, we can't doubt his love or get angry with him. He's in control. Because we have Ruth, Joseph, Job, life stories in the Bible that show us God is working behind the scenes. He did with Joseph, and that's why we have a story like Ruth. We could say it doesn't appear, but we see his hand. He's working behind the scenes. And all the suffering in these people's lives worked out for their good, did it not? It did. God had a purpose behind it that they couldn't see at the time. And Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. He said this light momentary affliction. And he's writing that. If you go back and read what Paul went through to call it light and momentary, wow. But that's what he called it. This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's what Paul says, light momentary. Oh, it's bad, but it's nothing compared to what's coming, what God's getting us ready for. And so my wife shared last week, we have to be like Job to see God's loving hand even in our pain. And we need to remember what Job learned in the end. He didn't have it, but we have it. And it's this, James 5, 11, Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job, and you have seen the end of the Lord. 
that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. So we need to remember no matter how severe our trials may appear to be, and maybe they are severe, we have to remember that the Lord is very pitiful. Full of compassion is what that means. God is full of compassion and full of tender mercy. And if we'll just hold on, brothers and sisters, we'll experience it. Amen? Amen. That's the book of Ruth. Well, let's pray. Father, I just ask that these words today from the book of Ruth can just be encouragement to all of our hearts, Lord, that to see your sovereign hand is in our lives, that nothing happens to it, Lord, that you haven't ordained, and that all things will work together, no matter how bad they seem. All things will work together for our good if we just love you and trust you and just continue to follow you, Lord. And we just thank you for this story that you've given us here. That we can know that even when things are dark, that light will shine through and that our great Redeemer, if you were willing to sacrifice him for us, Lord, it says in your word that you'll give us anything else we need for our good. And we just thank you for that, Lord. We just thank you for this encouragement today for us to trust you and to put our hand in your hand and walk through this life to put our trust and our faith under your wings like little birds. Thank you for speaking to us today in Jesus' name. Amen.